So, Will. Yes? Imagine, one day, you are handed a potion. And okay. you drink the potion. And it turns you into the hottest version of yourself possible. So I look like I do now. Sure. It's a potion that elevates you above... I'm trying to think of attractive people, and I'm drawing a blank. Brad Pitt. David you Beckham. Can use me as the example. Yourself. You are now god-tier level attractive. What do you do with your newfound beauty? Um, this is a this is a good question that I do not have an answer for. I mean, what do you do? There's several options available for you, and I'm torn right now. Attractive people succeed. That's just what they do. So the question is, do I want to succeed at modeling and then get invited to the Met Gala that way? Go on reality TV and get invited to the Met Gala that way? Try my hand at acting? That's the place where hot people can succeed the best or fail the worst. That is true. So it's, you know, right now I'm leaning towards reality TV, completely reinventing my personality to just be the worst version of myself and thus be the biggest hit in the reality world. Sure. Which reality show would you use as your platform? Who? it's a tough one. I think America's Next Top Model is still on, and I just started watching that for the first time, and Jesus Christ, that show is insane. So <laughs> I have never seen it. That sounds like a fun one. It's on Hulu. If you want to watch some batshit reality TV. I just have so many seasons of Survivor still. Yeah, you... You don't want to take on another 23-season TV show? The most recent one that I did, we watched the whole season in four days. Oh, my God. It's quarantine, man. Yeah, I mean, I've switched back into trash TV like America's Next Top Model and also comforting old sitcoms like Mary Tyler Moore Show and Golden Girls. Uh, Excellent choices. A world that just feels much safer than the current one. Absolutely. Um. Okay, so I think that my move is... Probably I try to do, maybe I like become like a full on swindler. Like I do the dirty Ooh, rotten scoundrels thing. I like that one. Yeah. So I just use it to hoodwink people and rob them. Ooh, a cat burglar. And Hathaway well, as Selena oh, Kyle. Okay. So I could do like sexy thief. I was thinking more, like I said, like Michael Caine and dirty rotten scoundrels where I just charm people into giving me money and then disappear on them. I mean, that's what I'm doing, too, by going on reality TV. <laughs> True. That's a good one. Ooh, I didn't even think of that. You're so smart. I mean, that's this is why they pay me the zero dollars to do this show. Uh, it's unfair that you're making a bigger zero than I am, but sometimes I think you earn it. I think it reflects the labor. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> well, there you go. Welcome to We Love the Love, a little behind-the-scenes peek into the show's running. A Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the most important question of our day. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? I feel like the answer is no to both. No, this one is a very hard no on every single person involved. It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at a truly wackadoo romance. From the director of Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Literally at this point, the only movies he had made were Who Framed Roger Rabbit and three Back to the Future movies. And then Robert Zemeckis directed Death Becomes Her. What a choice. This movie only works because it has such a good director behind it, though. Right. And a director who had experience using pioneering special effects. Yeah. This movie actually won the Oscar for Best Special Effects. Right. 
And deservedly so. The effects are really good. Yeah, they hold up. The hole through Goldie Hawn's stomach, like, you look at it today and you're like, this is clearly CGI, but it works so well. It is really impressive. Even just little things, like, right after Meryl Streep takes the potion and her, like, butt lifts and her boobs get perkier. It's cheesy, but the special effects look really good. I just, the boobs baffled me. Because what happens there is not a reflection of the breasts of a old versus a young woman. It's like the breasts of somebody who like magically gained an invisible push-up bra. It's really just the difference of the potion changed her bra from a bad one to a good one. Right. This movie, I was so happy from the start to the finish. It opens with Meryl Streep giving a very classic Broadway performance in 1978 that quickly just devolves into just pure disco. Oh, by the way, a peppy disco version of a dark Tennessee Williams play about like a gigolo and a Hollywood star. People are walking out of the theater. I don't know why. I was having a great time. Here's the thing. Watching it, I was like, I think this is a mediocre musical, but it's not an everybody walks out musical. And then I read about the play that the musical is based on, and I was like, oh, well, if I thought I was going to see a version of that play, I would be like, the heck is this? That makes sense. That is a joke I did not pick up on because I do not know that play. It's a pretty good joke, though. I mean, we spend a lot of time on this show talking about movies unnecessarily being made into musicals, and that's kind of playing in that zone in 1992. Meryl Streep is giving one of my favorite performances of hers in this movie. She is having. I think this is the first time we've talked about her. Is it really? Yeah. What a good place to start because she is giving her like biggest funniest, campiest performance in this movie. Yeah, Like, I guess we discussed her in an Oscars episode on The Post, but that's it. If you haven't seen this movie, do yourself a favor and just listen to Meryl Streep say the word flaccid 20 times in, like, a minute in different intonations each time. Flaccid. Watch what you say, Mel. Flaccid. Watch what you flaccid. say, Mel. I don't have to take this anymore. Yeah, I'm looking down the script and I noticed that one point is just all caps flaccid. Yeah, that... It captures all of the romance at that point, I feel. That moment, that fight scene. We'll get there. Oh yeah, we will. Anyway, like we said, this movie's directed by Zemeckis, who previously had used pioneering special effects, particularly in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and is doing similar things here. Industrial Light and Magic worked on the movie, and actually a lot of the same technicians who worked on this then worked on Jurassic Park the next year. Wow, that's crazy. Because... I mean, Jurassic Park is famous as this huge turning point in the history of computer-generated images, where they used a mix of CGI and animatronic dinosaurs, and they tested out a lot of their CG techniques on Death Becomes Her. So, like, this is the first movie with computer-generated skin texture, when Madeline has to reset her neck after being smashed in with the shovel. And I actually have, from the most recent home video release... I'll post it on social media too. Behind the scenes stuff where you can watch them construct the backwards head sequences using a combination of blue screen, animatronics, prosthetics. Like there's a ton of different stuff going on there. That's so cool. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is another movie that holds up extremely well. It rules. That's such a good movie. Robert Zemeckis is truly incredible at stuff like that. Of course, now in the 2000s, you get him still committing to Uh, groundbreaking, (laughs) groundbreaking visual effects with his trilogy, The Polar Express... Beowulf, and A Christmas Carol. Also, don't forget that he recently welcomed us to Marwin. He did indeed. Yeah, his more recent stuff is um, less up to my taste. I'll Here's the thing, it. though. Do you know what his next project is? Um, Isn't he doing The Witches? 
Robert Zemeckis is directing an adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches, starring Anne Hathaway as the head witch. See, that speaks to me. (laughs) How do you argue with that? Also in the cast, Octavia Spencer, Stanley Tucci, and Chris Rock. Yeah, I mean, it's like, now he's getting back to the stuff that appeals to me. Wait, and the screenplay is by him with Guillermo del Toro and Kenya Barris. Oh my god. Isn't Guillermo del Toro working on the Pinocchio that he's also attached to direct? Yes. What a team. Like, that's the thing is, maybe Zemeckis will be back. I hope so, because he has directed this movie that is, like, the most campy fun, and he's directed other movies that are, like, actually just not campy fun, like, just actual fun. And where, fun. Does, where does Forrest Gump fit into that <laughs> spectrum? Because <laughs> that's what he does after this. What a career. How do you go from Death Becomes Her to Forrest Gump? He's a weird dude. Oh, my God. And then he makes contact. <laughs> ah! This movie feels like the most outlier of the outliers, I would say. I mean, the thing is, I do feel like there's a shared DNA with Roger Rabbit, with some of the like cartoony energy, especially of the fight sequences, that does remind me of Roger Rabbit stuff. Like, watching Meryl Streep, with her head turned backwards, move across that room... Feels like watching some of the cartoon characters of Roger Rabbit walk through the scene. Right. But this movie also does have things to say. It's actually a pretty solid critique of beauty culture in Hollywood and obsession with, you know, rivalry over appearance being a downfall of everybody. It's not like this is just an empty-headed comedy either. It's like, there is stuff there. Not very far under the surface. I love his use of mirrors. Yeah, he does great mirror shots in this movie. This movie is... At least 25% mirrors, which obviously fits very well into the themes of the movie. Now, uh, by the way, we're talking a lot about Meryl Streep, of course. The other central woman in the cast is Goldie Hawn. And then rounding out our top three names above the title is Bruce Willis, just four years after Die Hard. Excuse me. With enough hair that I was, like, kind of thrown off. It's specifically Bruce Willis with hair. You have to specify. I was, like, very put off by it. It's very strange to see. That said, I think he's good in it. Yeah, he does a good job. I mean, he definitely... I think, misses the tone sometimes a bit more than Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, who are both completely tuned in. Sure. But it is also the kind of thing where, like, we reach a point by the end of the 90s where Bruce Willis is basically only doing action movies. Right. Where he's, like, doing some version of John McClane. And it's interesting to see him do something so different. Right, because he is a pathetic man in this. They originally wanted Kevin Kline, but he had to drop out. I can see that for sure. Very well. So, with Goldie Hawn, I've recently... I found Laugh-In, the 60s show that she got her start in on Amazon, and I was watching it, and she is also just incredibly funny in that. She is such a comedian, and in that, she plays, like, the dumbest dumb blonde, so it's also fun to see her play, like, the conniving seductress as well. Yeah, at some point, we should do one of her rom-coms with Kurt Russell. Yeah, like, Overboard. I don't know what other ones exist. (laughs) Well, there's Swing Shift, but... That one's not so good. So anyway, this movie also has Isabella Rossellini, who looks unbelievable in this movie. And she's 71 years old. (laughs) How old is she actually, though, when she was filming this? Uh, I don't know. Let me check. Famously the daughter of Ingrid Bergman. And Roberto Rossellini. Yeah. Who I don't really know. He's So in 1992, she would have been 40. Okay. So she looks incredible for 40, even. Yes. She never wears more clothes than, 
I guess she wears the big coat at one point, but her opening scene, she's just wearing necklaces and a blanket tied around her waist. Yeah. And she looks unbelievable and is also giving a wonderful performance. Do you think I could pull off that look? I think so. I say go for it. Good. We've already discussed on this episode the fact that I am the standard for beauty. <laughs> exactly. We just got to get you some real chunky necklaces and a lot of them. And then Good. you can use your Maryland blanket. Oh, yes. With the Maryland flag on it. Yeah. So every beat of her performance really just was so perfect for me. Yeah. She's nailing it as like the weird kind of foreign mystical person, but not in a way that feels racist or xenophobic. Right. She's just, you know, I guess German. Liesel von Dürer or something? I guess. Also, it's really nice of her to let them film in her house. Because that place seems exactly like where I'd expect Isabella Rosalini to live. (laughs) When she's not making her nature documentaries about animal sex, yeah. Exactly. So, anyway, this movie is about two women who feel that they are past their prime, competing over men, and just bickering. And clearly, this isn't a movie where the man is not important either. But he does play very important roles. Like, it'd be easy in this movie for the man to be kind of a non-entity. Right. But, like, they do a good job of giving him specific details and tasks that integrate him well into the story. Right. Like, he's an important character, but it's also... I do enjoy that the actual romance is not that important. Like, yes. neither woman actually loves him that much. They just are using him in a pawn of their game against each other. Right. Now, Death Becomes Her, like we said, it's directed by Robert Zemeckis. It's written by David Culp and Martin Donovan. Donovan hasn't written a ton. Culp has written, like, 50 movies, including Jurassic Park, Mission Impossible, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The people that worked on this movie, it makes sense why it, this movie, that the premise, you wouldn't expect it to... You'd be like, oh, whatever. But the talent that they got for the movie is why it's so good. Yeah, I mean, again, the visual effects are not what the movie's about, but if they don't work, the movie doesn't work. And they are executed so well. Right. And then they also got, you know, talented screenwriters, a talented director. Alan Silvestri does the music, which is really good. And Silvestri did a lot of Zemeckis movies. He wrote the score for Back to the Future. And then the cast, like... Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn were both cast perfectly. Unfortunately, though, the movie did not really make the money to reflect that level of talent. I mean, you think about the amount of work that ILM put into this movie that raises the budget quite a bit. The movie did open in first place on July 31st, 1992 at $12 million. And that was beating out movies like Honey, I Blew Up the Kid in its third week and A League of Their Own in its fifth week. But it topped out at $58 million against a $55 million budget. So... It was kind of seen as a failure, really. It's such a shame. This movie also, I mean, I will say this movie has a huge queer cult following to this day. And that's not a thing I knew about until I was doing research. Really? No, it's very big. Like, this movie is definitely appealing to a specific audience. There are many drag parodies of this that I know of. Um, Jinx Monsoon, who is the winner of season five of RuPaul's Drag Race, actually has a Drag Becomes Her show in Seattle that she does every so often. I read a number of interviews where people talked about this, and including the writers, basically saying, don't entirely know why it is so beloved by the queer community. Do you want to venture any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn as bickering actresses in extreme extremely beautiful clothes it's not a surprise to me in any way that this movie would appeal to a queer audience 
Okay. The elevated nature of it. I mean, it's similar to movies like Clue, where it's just the high comedy camp really appeals to a queer audience. And I don't know exactly why that's the case. But, I mean, you look at movies ranging from, you know, Clue to John Waters. There's that underlying elevated nature. Rocky Horror Picture Show, too. Movies that are just extremely elevated, I think, often get a queer cult following. And this movie exists in a higher plane. (laughs) Why do you think that is? I don't really know. I think there's something about living in a oftentimes unkind reality in your home life and school life leads you to want to retreat to a world where everything is elevated and fun and campy and doesn't reflect reality. Like, your world at home is probably going to be suckier than other kids. So, a world where everything is just at its highest peak, everything is moving fast-paced, it appeals to people who feel trapped and alone, I would say. That makes sense. Yeah, thanks for talking through that. That would be my guess, but I don't have any sources to back this up. This is just my feeling. Totally, yeah. So, this movie was... I think I saw part of it on TV in Singapore... And I really enjoyed this it. This feels like a perfect TV movie. Yeah, I mean, of course. So I didn't get to finish it, and I hadn't seen it all the way through until I watched it for this. Had you come across it at all? No, and it was a name that I knew, but I knew nothing about it. And I will tell you, I spent a good chunk of the movie feeling like I was waiting for the story to kick in. So the movie is about 100 minutes. Right. We're at 37 minutes when the elixir shows up for the first time. Yes. And basically, when I read enough of the premise to be like, okay, this is the movie that I'm watching, I expected them to be dead pretty early in the movie, and for the rest of the movie to be like, dead people hijinks. Like, I was watching this movie being like, I feel like this should be a sitcom, but it would be too expensive to do every week. Where, like, every week they have, like, some different issue they need to deal with, and it's complicated by the fact that they're dead. And to be fair, I think a Death Becomes Her sitcom would work very well. Yes. But that was the thing where I was, and I think it's partially because both of them have so little real interest in Ernest that I was always enjoying what was going on, but always a little bit on edge waiting for the movie to take a more familiar shape. This movie does not follow a super familiar path. I would say. Like you said, it takes a long time for the elixir to come into it, but it's because the movie's not about the elixir. The movie is about dealing with aging, and you have to have the time to feel aging set in. You have to establish, you know, the downfall before you can get back to the height, like, reclaiming her beauty. You have to see them progress, fall, age, the amount of effort that Madeline goes through to stay young. All of that is necessary before you can feel why the elixir matters so much. And then you also have to see, I think, Ernest's fall as well. Yes, that's important. In order to believe the end, which, you know, you don't really need to believe it. You just got to be along for the ride. It's a good ride. It is. I also was watching it and was surprised how late the elixir came into it, but I didn't really, I wasn't mad about it. Or anything. No, I wasn't upset. I I have started with some movies just pausing at different points to just thinking about the structure of the movie, how those things are laid out. I rewatched Infinity War a couple weeks ago, Mm -hmm. which is the movie that's skipping across so many different locations. And basically each sequence is almost exactly 10 minutes for the first hour of that movie. Wow. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. I haven't seen it. So it's the kind of stuff that I've been doing occasionally. Right. Yeah, the structure of this movie, I think, is very unique. It was hard to come up with the points. Yeah, I'll bet. Because some things move extremely, like, basically points one and two are so fast. 
because the movie I, just, point two is like a smash cut exactly and i just couldn't really think of anything else because there's so little about the interaction it's about feeling the downfall like you're feeling the emotions of these women and very little of that emotional baggage is spent on Ernest. Right. And that's also because in a lot of ways, it's a movie about women who the world ceases to care about when they cease to be at their peak attractiveness. Right. And the reasons that both of them wind up less engaged with Ernest are different. And so focusing on that doesn't really get at the core of what this movie's engaging with. Right. Because at the heart of it, they only care about each other. In a horrible way. In a horrible, horrible way. And I also like that they never fully establish how they know each other. No. Like, you know they went to school together, kind of, but you don't get the backstory of their relationship at all. All you know is that they are friends that hate each other from day one. I think the best thing to do now is to start talking through these points. Yeah, so every week we break down the romance into five points to analyze its believability, as is our God-given mission. It's our duty. So point one. I see me. I like what I see. The movie opens with Meryl Streep's musical number, and then we cut to backstage. And it's worth noting that during this musical number, most of the audience walks out derisively. Right. Except Ernest and Helen sitting in the audience. Ernest is enraptured, is really captivated by everything that Madeline Ashton is doing on stage, which is kind of alarming for Helen. Right. So then they go backstage and... Madeline, one of my favorite things in this movie is how both of them at different times rehearse their reactions. So Madeline's like positioning herself on her couch and before her assistant opens the door, she runs through a couple of (gasps) 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 in the mirror to figure out which one looks best and then (laughs) signals like you can open the door. And then she gives her gasp, and then obviously it's like the mad hell, and they give each other the kisses, pretending they love each other, and you can still feel the tension in the air. Right. Especially because Helen is already on edge, introducing a man to Madeline, and now even more so, since she feels like Ernest has a Madeline Ashton thing. Right. Which he clearly does. Oh, totally. He is fully starstruck. Later, Helen explains that she has lost three boyfriends to Madeline Ashton, and that's why they had to meet, because he had to pass the test. Which he does not. Which he does not, because smash cut to point two, Madeline and Ernest are getting married. It is worth noting, still back in point one, that Madeline immediately vultures in on Ernest as soon as she encounters him. Like the next day or something, she shows up at his work holding glasses and food to steal him away to dinner. Oh, I forgot about that. Because he is a famous plastic surgeon. So there's a a lot of reasons why Madeline would be interested in him. Because she's obsessed. Even at this point, she's obsessed with saying young. She's like interested in the plastic surgery. He's an adoring fan. And this is like late 70s. So that's earlier in the plastic surgery zone. Yeah. So he's an adoring fan. He's flattering her. So it makes sense. But at the heart of it, as we find out later, she just wants to steal Helen's fiance. Right. There are also some bad red flags for Helen because when Madeline hears that they're engaged, she asks if they've set a date, and Helen says yes, and Ernest says no. Oh my god, that got me. And yeah, so then Madeline and Ernest get married, and Helen spirals? Is this where we are, Helen? Six months of therapy, you're not even one pound lighter, and we are still talking about Madeline Aston? You think I enjoy 
talking about Madeline? Do you think I enjoy? Huh? A little bit. That's one way to put it. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Seven years later, Helen is getting evicted from her apartment. She is watching Madeline get murdered in a movie repeatedly on TV before getting scooping ice cream out of a bowl into her mouth, out of a tub with her hands into her mouth, and she is sent to a mental hospital to address her obsession with Madeline Ashton. And she spends years there, right? I think so, yeah. But not too long, because she has to have time to write her book. Right. And then we get to seven years later, and we see that Madeline and Ernest's marriage might not be everything that they wanted it to be. And that's point number three, right? Yeah, so point three. You're a powerful, sexual being, Ernest. Yes, you are. And if I never told you before, it's because... I just wasn't the sort of girl that could say the word sexual without blushing. Well, I can now. Ernest is sleeping upstairs because he's passed out drunk, so he doesn't come to bed anymore. Seems to be a usual thing. Yeah, he's now a mortician instead of a plastic surgeon. And that's because of the alcohol, right? His hands shake too much from alcoholism, so he can't perform surgery on people. Right. And so the two of them get ready, or I guess, yeah, Madeline goes to her crazy, crazy salon. You see a woman in like a gyroscope. They're doing plasma separation. These are like Blade Runner rooms. Yeah, it's insane. And there we first hear... The creepy salon owner tell her about a woman who is very expensive. Money has to be no object, but she's worth it. Which Madeline's like, that's weird. He's weird. And rips up the card. An incredible and very creepy performance by this guy. Yeah, it's insane. But then they get ready and they go to a book launch for Helen's new book, Forever Young. Which Madeline is very derisive about. She's like, yeah, please, Helen, she's a disaster. Forever Young. Give me a break. Right. But then they see that Helen looks incredible. Right. So she's lost a ton of weight. She now has perfect makeup, a beautiful dress. She wears great 80s hair. I guess it's the 90s. Yeah. She wears but big hair. Red or black for the rest of the movie exclusively. Great reds throughout the movie oh, on Helen. Really. Very bright red. It's beautiful. And Madeline is distraught at how good Helen looks. And Helen's book is a beauty book because, again, beauty is the only thing that matters. And when Madeline sees what Helen looks like, she's like, okay, we should leave this party. Time to go. But Helen zooms in on the two of them and steals Ernest away to talk about how he's doing so that Madeline can literally watch from behind a bush. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so Madeline is very angry at this, even though she clearly does not care about Ernest that much. Right, and Helen's going on about like, yeah, I can't believe that she did this to you, really framing the fact that Ernest is now an alcoholic who can't perform surgery as Madeline's fault. Right, but earlier she had been talking to Madeline and was like, I don't blame you at all about stealing Ernest. It was his choice to leave me for you. I don't blame you. Oh, I love you, Madeline. We're such good friends. And she gives the actually exact same speech basically in reverse to Ernest, but Madeline overhears it, so she is not happy. Yeah. So that night, Ernest and Madeline go home, and Madeline goes out first to hook up with her hot young stud, but he has a younger lady over. Right. And he calls her out. He's like, why do you think that you own me? 
you make me look ridiculous. The age gap between us is huge. Which upsets her. So then she goes to see Isabella Rossellini right. to drink the elixir to make herself forever young. But while this is happening, Helen, who rehearses her, I need to see Madeline, multiple times, shows up at their house and is like, I need to see Madeline. And her says, she's gone. She's like, great, I could drop that act. Tosses her umbrella out into the rain. <laughs> so funny it is you know oh Ernest, they never stopped loving you blah 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 and then plots out madeline's murder with Ernest. right about how like look i've thought it all through you're gonna poison the wine glasses i'll come over for dinner she'll drink from the wine glass she'll be poisoned we'll stage her drunk driving death the poison will burn out of her system and be overwhelmed by all the alcohol so we'll be able to get back to how things should be you and me and madeline dead and you get a great car accident explosion where the car goes over a cliff in LA, lightly grazes the first rock, and fully explodes. Yeah, because this is all Helen's imagination. Exactly. You know, just Ernest is like wearing a tuxedo in it, and we never see him in anything like that. Yeah, because he is not a um, happy man. So this, again, like <laughs> moving quickly, brings us to point four. Oh, and it's established in point three is that Ernest can't leave... Madeline, because he would lose everything to her, including, it sounds like, all of the money he brought to the marriage as well. Which is why they have to go to murder. (laughs) Obviously. It's the only logical- It's the only logical solution. And so this brings us to point four, which is- Placid. Watch what you say, Mel. I don't have to take this anymore. After Madeline has... Sorry, Mark, what's this point called? Uh, Flaccid. Okay. So after Madeline has drugged the potion, she comes back home, changes into an incredible outfit, which is like a black cat suit with a tulle purple blazer over it, kind of. It's a pretty great look. It's incredible. And so she's clearly going out to bang the young guy again. And this is where Ernest confronts her, having gotten the courage from Helen to finally stand up to Madeline. And they fight. And unfortunately, they're having a fight. Madeline winds up kind of tipping on the stairs, in part because of her heels. After calling him a flaccid man, both in personality and physically, repeatedly, he starts choking her and is holding her over the stairs. Yeah, I mean, this is... Pretty sickening, actually. The choking sequence is a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. So then he lets go, and she's tipping on the stairs. Physics doesn't really apply in this movie. No, again, it's a cartoon movie. Right. And so she's, like, her heels are hanging off the stairs, and she's there for a while. And she's like, help me, Ernest. Help me. And eventually she calls him, like, an idiot or something again, and he just touches her chest, and she falls down the stairs in a... Sickeningly. Sickening. It starts out very sickening, but it goes on so long that by the end, it's clearly comedy, because it's a cartoon movie. Right. So then he immediately goes and calls up Helen to be like, she's dead! I did it! And Helen's like, you absolute fool. Or in the words of my friend Julia, you absolute donkey. They will check the phone records and see that you called me first. So, basically, she has to start to make a plan for how to deal with it. She's like, we'll have been on the phone as you hear a scream, and that's why the call with me is before the call with the police. But in the background, you see Madeline's body start to stand up. It's important to realize, for our purposes, that while Helen is clearly after Madeline for revenge, she constantly frames it to Ernest as, this is the only way we can be together. Right. So, to him, it's very much about, you know... He's sick of Madeline. Their romance is And this is an opportunity for different romance with a hot lady. Right. So now he is looking for new love. So- We have some undead hijinks. Yeah, undead um, hijinks. Because Madeline 
was killed by falling down the stairs, but because she drank Rosalini's elixir, she cannot die. She is forever young. Already dead. Right. So now her body is dead, but and looks at. her consciousness can still animate it. And so this is where the fact that Ernest is now a mortician becomes crucial because dead people's bodies, their pores get too big, so makeup won't adhere. And so he had developed a technique to use spray paint to do touch-ups on corpses. Right. And By the way, it's actually worth noting, Meryl Streep is allergic to a lot of cosmetics. Huh. So most of the old age makeup that she's using in this movie is actually prosthetics. They look good. Yeah. So undead hijinks. Helen ends up with a giant hole in her stomach. Right. She comes over. There's a big fight. Meryl Streep shoots her in the stomach. Yeah. And then she rises and spends the rest of the movie with a giant hole in her stomach. Right. And so Madeline and Helen then actually hash it out. They talk about their relationship. Madeline admits she didn't really love Ernest. She was stealing him away from Helen. And eventually they make up and become best friends. Yes. Very quickly. And Ernest wants to get the hell out of here. But they both need him because he knows how to do the spray paint makeup. Right. So he makes a deal. He will fix them up once and then he's gone. He's leaving. Never to be seen again. (laughs) And they then attempt to poison him. He doesn't drink the alcohol. So they both smash him over the head with faces. Pretty great. This movie's a cartoon. You are right. I did not think about that as much. It's a Roger Rabbit thing. Yeah, it is. And so this brings us to point five. Ernest, do you still have the potion? Do you still have it? Find it. Find it! It's the only way you'll survive if you fall. Drink it! Drink it or you'll die! Ernest wakes up in the basement, not basement, pool house, I guess, under the creation of man. Stay glass window. Stay glass window. To Isabella Rosalini swimming naked except for a scarf in the pool. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So she gets out, and the scarf just happens to be draped appropriately, and she tries to give him the same pitch she gave them earlier. She's like, you've done great work with the dead bodies, so you should be able to be immortal as well. And he gives the correct answer to an offer of immortality, which is, I would get bored and watch everyone I know die. Right, so he says no, and hijinks ensue again, there's a chase scene, blah blah blah. Because... Madeline and Helen are determined to make him immortal as well because they need him to forever make them look good. Right. And eventually he ends up hanging by his suspenders from a gutter and they break and he refuses to drink it. So he drops the potion instead of drinking it to save his life, which is kind of what you expect to happen. But fortunately, he falls through a stained glass window into a pool from very high up. So obviously he lives because that's how physics works. As one does. As one does. And runs away, and then we cut to his funeral, and back to the romance. He has lived a full and happy life after turning 50. It's been 27 years, which means that Ernest will die in 2029. Oh. Fashion looks suspiciously like it did in 1992 in 2029. A little bit. So he finds happiness, learning to embrace life as it's given to you. He starts a charity. He, you know, helps people and becomes a good man, finally, at the ripe old Marries a nice lady, adopts her kids. Has other kids after that. And then at the funeral, Madeline and Helen do not look so hot. No, well, that's because they are actively decaying. Right. And then the movie ends with them falling downstairs and shattering into pieces. When you're dead, your joints weaken. Yeah, apparently everything just falls apart. Which, it raises the question of how did she look so good? Isabella Rosalini. So I don't think everybody who drinks the elixir is dead. Really? No, I think that... Oh, because they die. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think 
they're dead because they were killed. I don't think Rossellini was killed. Okay. I don't think sense. Elvis was killed. Yeah. This is one of back-to-back movies in which Zemeckis inserts Elvis. <laughs> was he in... He wasn't... What came right before He's this? in Forrest Gump. Oh. He is. Oh. Oh, Robert. <laughs> oh, Mr. Zemeckis. So, well, as we've discussed, this movie is the height of realism. Everything lines up perfectly. Do you find the romance believable? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean... I mean... Maybe... If they hate each other so much that she does try and steal him? Sure. But one of the problems is we don't know what the timeline is for Madeline marrying Ernest. Right. We don't know that. We don't know anything, really. But nonetheless, no. Because I think the attempted murder is the problem for me. That Ernest so readily, with almost no prompting, agrees that the thing he needs to do is murder his wife by poisoning and then incinerating her. You know what? Fair. Because... Here's the thing. We don't know the timeline for him flipping from Helen to Madeline. I do see how, as that relationship deteriorated, he could say, like, you know, maybe, you know, things were better when I was with Helen. I was this well-respected plastic surgeon. Maybe I could go back to that. And she's much hotter now. Right. But the murder. Yeah. I wouldn't say this is a zero. No. But it is very low. Where would you rate it? Every week we... I'm calling it a six, actually. I've been talking myself into it. Yeah, I was actually leading... Because I think... There is a kernel of believability here. He is an adoring fan that makes her feel good at first and is a plastic surgeon, which she likes. So it makes sense that she would chase him even separate from Helen. But yeah, a lot, a lot. It does not make it a 10. So I think a six, I agree. Hell, I'm going seven. Oh, bold. We've been talking me into it. Do you think that Helen, Madeline, or Ernest is dateable? None of them. None of them. Yeah, um, Helen is uh, an attempted murderer and... Ernest is an actual murderer, and Madeline, Madeline's a no-good person. Madeline's also a murderer. She didn't know that oh, that's Helen true. would survive the gunshot directly to her stomach. Good point. And we are anti-murder, as we've established. Strictly anti-murder. Do you think that these couples would stay together? I don't really know how to answer so, this. I think it's like imagining Ernest and Madeline and Ernest and Helen. Could those be lasting relationships? No. I think not. No. The only lasting relationship in this movie from the beginning was Helen and Madeline. Yeah. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? The only person I could think of is Anna, the beauty technician, because she is just a person with a job. And while she works at a crazy place, she at least follows procedure and is unwilling to take a bribe. So she's got a backbone. Okay. So that's who I'm going with. Can I pick somebody from a deleted scene? Ooh, that's a that's an interesting question. Tell me more. So this movie originally had a different ending. In that ending, Ernest escaped from the party and winds up at a bar run by Tracy Ullman. (laughs) And Tracy Ullman plays a character named Tony who helps him fake his death. They live a happy life together. Uh, 27 years later, Madeline and Helen run into them as happy retirees. So I would like to date Tracy Ullman, the bartender. That's a excellent choice. So we talk about this a lot. Movies we've covered frequently have been adapted into musicals. Do you think that Death Becomes Her should become a staged musical? What do you think? I think that I would love to see a drag version of this show, but I don't know if it needs to be a stage musical because it would lose a lot of the cartoon elements that are what is a big part of it. Well, you'll get an opportunity to find out because in 2017... A Broadway musical starring Kristen Chenoweth as Madeline was announced. Of 
course it was. No other creative team has been announced, but Chenoweth did confirm last year that it is still very much in development. I mean, the thing is, it's like, I guess we have the technology that maybe you could put a hole in Helen on stage, but if you can't have a hole in Helen, there's no point in having it. It's a big part of it. I still say no. Well, we shall see. All right. Well, I think that about does it for Death Becomes Her. Uh, Fantastic film. Highly recommended. Yeah, it was a good time. I'm glad you picked this. Next week, we are going to be watching another weird film with surprising supernatural elements. We are watching Steven Spielberg's Always. You know what? You hooked me back in. Steven Spielberg romance movie, kind of, but you brought me back in with Holly Hunter. And then you cut me on the line with everyone else. I've never seen it. I've been watching through all of Spielberg in chronological order. So, like, I just watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and I'm excited to see what's next. Well, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can always email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular really help other people discover the show. All right, Will. Last question. After an excellent advice week last week, what's the best piece of dating advice you got from Death Becomes Her? Oh, uh, I would say... It's very important to be clear with your understanding of the relationship because it seems like Madeline and her young squeeze had not had a conversation about whether they were exclusive in any meaningful way. I would say that putting your significant other through psychological tests does not turn out well. That's a good one, too. See, we turned out okay. Yeah, look at us. (laughs) All right. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything that there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Bye.